there are crimes every day across the globe. 911, what's your emergency? Murders, homicides, burglaries, robberies, assaults, and so much more. Here, we will be telling you the true stories about those involved in homicides, murders, burglaries, robberies, heists, and many more crimes. So sit back, try to relax, and let's get into the show. This is Chilling Ice Cold Crime. Hello, hello, hello. We're a little bit late, but it's before the weekend, and I promised you that there'll be a new episode each week, so we have today. Happy Saturday, everybody, and welcome back to the Chilling Ice Cold Crime Podcast. I hope you guys are having a great day. Today, we're going to be talking about a few different true crime stories. The first one I want to talk about is the Chicago, Chicago Tylenol murders. This is something that was truly evil. But let's go ahead. This is the Chicago Tylenol murders. Now, in September of 1982, a 12-year-old girl in Chicago passed away shortly after ingesting an extra-strength Tylenol. Now, that same day, a man died in a hospital after taking the same pill. Two of his family members all followed. Over the course of the next few weeks, more seemingly healthy people in Chicago dropped dead, and the only thing they had in common was taking extra strength Tylenol shortly before their untimely death. As bottles were recalled by Johnson & Johnson, it was discovered that many of the extra strength Tylenol pills had been laced with potassium cyanide. Once this was made public, Johnson & Johnson issued numerous ads and warnings to customers to avoid the product. The company began working fervently on a triple-sealed package that would prevent tampering. James William Lewis of New York City contacted Johnson & Johnson, claiming that he was responsible for tampering with the bottles and filling the capsule with cyanide. He demanded $1 million in exchange for him to stop. He was arrested and for the crime, and although he wasn't found guilty, he was still imprisoned for extortion. Even after Johnson & Johnson fortified their Tylenol bottles against tampering, the widespread news of what had happened in Chicago prompted crimes of similar nature all around the country. The quality control of pharmaceuticals increased tenfold, as did the security of their packaging. Although the FBI didn't have enough evidence to convict anyone of the crime, it is widely believed that James William Lewis and his wife were indeed responsible. Now we're going to read a story that is titled, The Icebox Killers. In 1965, Fred and Edwina Rogers were living in Houston along with their grown son, Charles. The family mostly kept themselves in their quiet neighborhood, especially given Charles's reclusive and antisocial behavior. In fact, many neighbors were not even aware that Charles lived at home with his parents because he left the house each day before dawn and didn't return until well after midnight. Or, I'm sorry, well after nightfall. When a family member hadn't heard from the Rogers in several days, he called the Houston police for a welfare check on his elderly aunt and uncle. 
The patrolmen were unable to locate Fred and Edwina, but they noticed food sitting on the dining room table. They opened the fridge and noticed numerous packages of meat, neatly stacked atop one another. Then they noticed two human heads in the vegetable bin. Oh my gosh. Hmm. Additional officers arrived on the stomach-turning scene and slowly removed the packages full of dismembered body parts from the fridge. The remains were that of Fred and Edwina Rogers. The police deduced that Edwina had been brutally beaten and shot while Fred suffered forceful trauma to the head. His eyes had been gouged out and his genitalia removed. The couple's innards had been flushed in the toilet. Charles was nowhere to be found. Naturally, Charles was the prime suspect in this heinous crime. However, he seemed to have vanished off to the face of the earth. Though the police were able to collect circumstantial pieces of evidence against him, Charles Rogers was never found. So where is this Charles Rogers? Where was this case at again? In 1965 in Houston, Charles Rogers from Houston, murder, 1965. Was there any more information on him? Huh. Here's an article from 2016 from Cron. Now, this article states... Uh, this week, the show profiled Houston's grisly icebox murderers in 1965, a case that was more than 50 years has remained unsolved. Well, unsolved in court, at least. Um, yeah. yeah. The lone suspect was their 43-year-old son, Charles Rogers, who lived with his parents. At that point, eight years before the discovery of Dean Corll's serial murders, Houston hadn't yet dealt with such ghastly crimes. Um, Charles Rogers vanished without a trace, but the gardeners think that they know what happened to him and detailed their work in heavily researched book released in 2003. Yeah, so here's the book. It's on iceboxmurders.com if you guys want to go read that. Um... Hmm. The gardeners contend that Rogers was a brilliant geopsychist with powerful connections with who harbored deep resentment against his parents after suffering years of abuse, mental and even financial, at their hands. Uh, he was also methodical in the way he drained the bodies of blood and dissected them into pieces. Rogers, according to the couple, made the crime look like a robbery gone wrong by staging the house just so. I'm going to tell you right now. There is no robbery out there where someone is going to take time to dismember their bodies. They continue to skip town from Mexico, hiding with the help of his connections in oil and mining, who valued his brilliant mine, only to be later killed in Honduras during a mining dispute. Now, this podcast is a quick listen, a bit more than 20 minutes, and will leave listeners wanting more. The couple had to take on a new case. They did, they might have only, only one grisly case in them. 
Again, the property was at 1815 Driscoll, where the murders occurred in now, in the spirit of Montrose, the site of deluxe townhomes built in 2000. The city of Houston bulldozed the Rogers house in 1972. So this guy was never found. It's a true cold crime. Oh my goodness. This, this is a true cold crime. Ice cold crime. That is so cold in so many different ways. Firstly, it's cold because of the ice box. It's also cold because it went cold. And it's also cold because of how disgusting and immoral and just, uh, the whole thing is. Oh my goodness. Removing your own father's genitalia. Come on. You've got to be kidding. Oh my. <laughs> Jeez. That is so cold. Okay, moving into our next true crime story, we are going to be talking about the granny killer. Hmm. An English-born Australian serial killer, John Wayne Glover, was known for preying on an elderly woman, including the widow of artist Will Ashton. Over the span of 14 months between 1989 and 1990, Clover murdered six elderly women and after brutally attacking them. At times, he used simply his fist to attack his victims. With others, he used objects like hammers, his victims' pantyhose, and other instruments. Many of his victims were simply women he saw walking past him on the street with whom he struck up casual conversation. In addition to attacking and murdering these six women, Glover was also accused of molesting and sexually assaulting several other elderly women. At his trial, a psychologist noted that while Glover was sane, he had a severe personality disorder, which may or may not have been connected with his turbulent relationship with his mother and mother-in-law. After being found guilty and sentenced to prison, Glover killed himself in 2005. Days before he died, he had his last visitor a picture he had drawn featuring two trees and the number nine. Supposedly, nine is a true number of murders Glover was responsible for, not merely the six for which he was convicted for. Oh, oh man. Like, there's something about the elderly that just makes me feel just so, like, sad for like everybody i will be but the elderly on top of all that like they poor crippled and older women and that's just so sad and disgusting that guy is uh next up we have the story titled the eyeball killer this Texas murderer and diagnosed psychopath killed at least one woman with two more suspected murders to his name. Adopted from an orphanage, Charles Albright was cared for by his very protective adoptive parents. His mother was a school teacher and helped him accelerate his learning so far that he entered college in his teens. Despite being so bright, he was also known for partaking in criminal behavior. Arrested first for aggravated assault at the age of 13, his murderous roots, however, lied in a childhood interest. After Albright received a shotgun at a young age, he used it to kill small animals. He would then stuff them with the help of his mother, appeasing his interest in taxidermy. After failing to complete pre-med training at both North Texas University and Arkansas State Teachers College, 
he would be sent to jail for theft, molestation, and eventually the murder of a sex worker. Although police suspected him of at least three more slayings, his victims' bodies were left nearly and completely nude out on a city street. They had been shot in the head and their eyes had been removed with surgical-like precision. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, my goodness. No, 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 no. Okay, ready? Hi, baby. Oh, my gosh. Back to the video. Back to our podcast. Oh, my goodness. No, no, no. That is so bad. Okay, our last story today is the girl in the box. 20-year-old Colin Stan was on her way to a friend's birthday in Northern California where her soon-to-be captor, Cameron Hooker, and his wife, Janice, picked up the hitchhiker. Stan would spend much of the next seven years trapped in a box that let in no light, sound, or fresh air. Convinced by the hookers that a mysterious and dangerous organization would kill her and her family if she didn't comply. Under an agreement between Janice and Cameron and eventually, though, through a forcibly signed contract when Stan the Young was to be a sex slave for Cameron, though no penetration initially occurred, when Stan was out of her box, when she spent up to 23 hours a day eating cold food scraps and using a bedpan. She was tortured and raped using various objects. Several years into captivity, a brainwashed Stan was allowed to visit her family once and even got a job. But when Cameron said he wanted Stan to be his second wife, the entire horrifying situation fell apart. Stan eventually got on a bus and fled to her family while Janice turned her husband in, receiving immunity for her full cooperation. Mm. I'm sorry, but that is just totally wrong. That gives me the chills. That just makes me, like, sick. That is so sad. I'm not even kidding. That is so sad. The full story here, um, she was, we already told you, it was 1977, and she was kidnapped while hitchhiking and held captive and tortured for seven long years. During the worst of her nightmare experience, she was kept locked in a wooden box for 23 hours a day. She wasn't held in the box all that time. Occasionally, she was granted enough freedom to cook and clean, look after her captor's children, even jog or visit her family on her own. But always, she was kept in place by brainwashing and threats, including promises that a shadowy organization called The Company would kill her and her entire family if she tried to escape. It wasn't until August of 1984, then just months from her 28th birthday, would finally escape her torment, and even then, her long years of torture and programming prevented her from going to the authorities right away. When the whole story finally did come out, it shocked not only the police, but the entire world, inspiring dozens of movies, TV episodes, and even songs. From the 2007 found footage horror film, The Poughkeepsie Tapes, to a Swedish opera. But just what actually happened to Stan? How did she survive and what other horrifying secrets remain to be discovered? For that, we must start at the beginning. Wow. Mm. And now there's this new scary movie called The Pooksy Tapes. 
and it is a new popularity on the video sharing app. Similar to Megan is Missing, the Pussy Tapes is composed of found videos, news reports, interviews, and other first-hand accounts of what took place in Pussy Keep, New York. While the movie is entirely fictitious, its structure has led people to believe that it is entirely real. That was never a discovery of 800 videotapes in Poughkeepsie, nor was there a mass murder on the caliper on the loose. Regardless, the found footage tapes feature disturbing imagery that is sexually and bodily horrific, accompanied by depictions of assault. Wow. I think this is probably one of the most coldest podcast episodes we've ever had. It's honestly been kind of a little bit extra creepy, and these make me feel extremely uncomfortable. So, anyway, that is it for today's episode on this Saturday the 16th. I hope you guys enjoy today's episode, and I will see you back here for our next episode coming sometime next week. Have a fantastic week ahead, and I'll see you in the next episode. Crimes are committed every day all across the globe. This was just a few of them. There is millions and trillions more all across the globe. The real question is, will you return for the next episode to hear more of chilling ice-cold crime? I'm your host, Austin, and there is new episodes coming every week sometimes more than once a week so you can get more stories and more crime to ring your ears off. Hey! Ice Cold Stories of Pure True Crime Only here at Chilling Ice Cold Crime.